I want to make people follow us. Okay. How do we make them? You can't make them. We can't even really bribe them. Mm. So I feel like the things you're supposed to do are like introduce yourself. So they already know who we are because they subscribed. Mm -hmm. So that's a little redundant. And then you're supposed to be like, hey, follow us on Instagram and Facebook, which is always annoying. Like even when I'm listening, like I've, I subscribe to a bunch of YouTube channels. Even when I'm listening or watching those YouTube channels and I know and like the person, I'm like, screw you. I don't want to follow. Oh, fine. Because <laughs> they like guilt you and they're just like, hey, actually, this is the way I, you know, I need reviews. And you're like, oh, you're like, I guess. <laughs> so guilt them. Okay. How do we make them feel guilty? Okay, guilt trips. <laughs> we're just so sad and lonely without yeah. your follows and reviews. <laughs> I don't know. Should we just give up? Yeah. We're just going to shut it down. <laughs> just no more pot. No. Just, just skip like six months and be like, well. Did you miss us? You That's right. Do you know why we went away? Because you didn't follow us. So we had no choice. Maybe so. Maybe that's the way. It's like you know what? We're you just don't, wilting. You don't over need here. to follow us. You don't need to subscribe. Just thoughts and prayers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thoughts, thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers. All we need. Yeah. It really, really saw. Like, you know. I mean, it's clearly working how, everywhere else. So many podcasts have been kept on the air through thoughts and prayers. Mm -hmm. This is Charles. And this is Rachel from BNV Radio. This is Design Goggles. This week's show is titled Post-Truth Design and is part three of a three-part series. The post-truth era is in full swing and it has affected nearly everything. We have never been more skeptical of the facts presented to us and basic concepts like science, nature, and the world at large are being challenged from every direction. Even though journalism didn't start the post-truth fire, so to speak, it is partly the gasoline that gives it fuel. Ironically, it might just be our only hope to extinguishing the flames. How do journalists play a role on both sides of the trenches in the post-truth era? How do they deal with the double-edged sword that is social media? How will we emerge from the post-truth era? Better yet, will we? To help us with that question and more, we are joined by Monica Guzman, director of The Evergrey, a digital news publication here in Seattle. Monica, thank you so much for making time to sit and chat with us again. Yes, this will be awesome. I'm excited. I've been looking forward to this since we ended our last podcast with yeah. you. Yeah. So, it's a tiny subject, really casual. Oh, totally. No high no stakes at all. No deep thoughts. Nope. Really just kick back. Yep. Easy. You know? Easy peasy. Something to think about on the beach. <laughs> you know, it's funny. When I first started doing research, I thought that journalism would be like, yes, journalism is where post-truth era started. I discovered, at least according to the few books that I actually read, most people point to the cigarette industry as the first time that a bunch of people literally got together and master planned a huge disinformation campaign literally to obscure scientific fact. Our nature of wanting to not believe stuff is just being human, but that organized disinformation in the modern era started there. Mm, when was that? The memos they were referencing... 50s, the only reason 60s? I'm wondering is because it just triggered because the whole campaign about whether lead is toxic is another really good example that we should look into. Was that after know. or before the I tobacco? I don't know. I, was I just, remember that's what I was wondering. Do you remember that movie? Thank you for smoking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That mm -hmm. one was about this tobacco mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. Well, the memo that like they were referencing was literally 50s, 60s. It was really early on. It was okay. like, oof, this science. Mm, darn. And how incredibly effective it was. 
then journalism stepped in and started playing a role. So as our resident journalism expert, where are we right now? What is the state of the post-truth era in journalism? Where to begin? I feel like things are being exposed right now. To me, it's not so much about things changing. It's about things being exposed. And one of the things being exposed is that we are not at heart rational. We're not. We make decisions and come to opinions via processes that are not fact-checked at all. It's largely guided by our instinct, our feelings, the things that affirm the things we already suspect. That's always been human nature. And what's happened lately is a lot of the sheen and the sort of layers covering up all of that have been peeled back. And a lot of the common realities that we all thought we shared have been exposed as not a common reality at all. All these different kinds of people have different ways of looking at the world. Media has emphasized one group's narrative and another group's narrative. And those narratives are going farther apart than ever, it feels like. So I think that what this is, is about kind of confronting how information gets into our brains and into our hearts. And it's never been about the facts. Not really. The facts have always just aligned neatly to those things. And so we can call our decisions rational. But oftentimes it's about how we feel. It's about the narratives. Do you think fear plays a part? Yeah, I think fear plays a big part, especially in who we think we belong to, what groups we belong to, and what groups we don't belong to, who we think the enemy is and who the allies are. And whoever the enemy is, the way they see the world is the wrong way to see the world. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, there's a lot of that going on. Do you think that there is hope for minimizing some of that or is it just evolutionarily as humans we evolved with this tribal mentality to find your people and battle whoever the other is is yeah. is, is there a way that we can grow out of this or is it so innate that yeah we can't i think both things are true i mean we can grow out of it but we have to get to a place where we see our tribe where we can draw a bigger circle around our tribe Span again the tribe. yeah but right now the way i look at this generously is that all this tribalism and all this splitting up is quote unquote good because it's every every individual tribe is understanding a little more honestly who they are and what they bring to the table that has not been acknowledged by the broader society that well yet so that's my that's my sort of generous interpretation is right now everybody feels divided but if all goes according to kind of the 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 benevolent plan then when we come back together, we'll be smarter mm-hmm. and stronger. And whatever the unified society and identity is again, it will be more honest about the different segments that make it up. That's what mm-hmm. I'm hoping. It's about the most, I mean, you're making me feel a little optimistic okay, right good. now, which is, good, which good, is good. rare. Yeah. Well, let me step in and kick Thank some you. sand on Please it. do. Please do. No, no, no. This is a, this is a good So debate. every um, journalistic outlet, what do you... What do you call every news organization? News organization. Suppose, Thank maybe? you. Suppose. Yeah. Counts as like a, a voice or it's thought of in a macro level as a voice. Yeah. And there was an experiment that took place in the 80s, I think, where a group of 12 people sat around a boardroom table. 11 of the 12 were actually part of the organization running the experiment. But the 12th person was not. And they gave all 12 people, again, 11 of those 12 were all scientists, part of the experiment, but the 12th person didn't know that. They thought all 12 of these people were brought in just like them. They gave a card with several lines drawn on them, and they were supposed to identify which line was the longest line. And for the first couple, the people who were not brought in, they were the scientists, all picked the correct line as the longest line. 
And then there was no dissenting opinion. And then they intentionally, the 11 to the 12, started lying about which line was the longest. And at first, the person dissented once or twice. But after that, agreed with everyone else every single time because so many people said that it was not the line. So even if a part of that person's rational brain was knowing that they were incorrect, there was clearly this need to agree for one reason or another, whether it was some sort of subconscious acceptance or just judging how much effort it would take to try to convince others that they were all seeing it wrong. Mm -hmm. Or a risk assessment. Right. Yeah, that's true. Well, these people are crazy. Being that they're crazy, I'm not going to say something that might make them mad at me. So the way this might kick sand on that is how many of those 11 of the 12 have to be telling the truth or have to be true to reality for a person to feel comfortable even acknowledging reality. Yeah, exactly. And I think what what that experiment tells me is one of our deepest instincts is to belong. And in times of tribalism, when there's more anxiety in society and things like that, belonging becomes really important to the point where you might actually sort of want to believe whatever you feel pressured to believe by the group that you want to belong to. And I think we see that all over the place right now. A lot of the viewpoint diversity, I've heard that term thrown around, Mm. has been cut off and it's resolved to two poles. On so many issues, it gets pushed to the extremes because Mm. of that reason, because we all need to belong. And the tribes to belong to are either on one side or another of an Mm -hmm. issue. And the middle or the side that is trying to be nuanced or whatever kind of doesn't exist. There's nothing to belong to if you want to try to be nuanced. So by that explanation, it's much more human nature. Yeah, More in times of anxiety. Right. I mean, if you want to be psychological oh, about it, right? Yeah. But but yeah, but when we're not so anxious, then it's more okay to just say, wait a minute, you know what? I actually disagree with that. I think it's like this. And then you're not afraid what people think. Everyone's right. cool with it. But these days, on a lot of issues, so many issues feel political, so many issues feel high stakes. You would just rather not give an opinion if it isn't the opinion that your tribe. Yeah, I think it's become more difficult to separate political from personal than right. it used to be. Right. And it's because of the high stakes stuff. It feels like the political, I mean, it is always personal on some level and it feels extra personal now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something else that occurred to me about the Evergrey specifically, something that I think you're so good at. And in fact, I think it'll maybe in our last show, you just wanting to foster as much conversation as possible and ask as many questions as possible. So many of the features and articles are so well-balanced in viewpoint. How do you do both? Be part of the solution without giving, and I'm not even saying not giving a viewpoint is a bad thing, but how do we as a community counteract misinformation if we're not taking a stance? Meaning one viewpoint is always right? Not necessarily, but I just keep thinking of this quote what is it? If you don't read the news, you're uninformed. If you do read the news, you're misinformed. Or something like that, essentially. <laughs> yeah. But so it's like the only way to solve that is to actually inform. Yeah. So fostering a conversation definitely prompts exchange of information. Right. But how does journalism properly play a role in actually distilling out facts versus fiction? I guess is the oh, question. And I'm that gets ask. so, I mean, I think of epistemology, right? The science of what is real. Mm-hmm. It kind of gets to that because the the assumption is that there is an absolute reality and journalists can tap it. And there are things called facts that are completely inarguable from all sides. Right. But the truth is that totally depends on where society is. Mm-hmm. And right now, I think that it is very difficult 
to find the common denominator type things that all sides can agree on and that can feel like fact to everybody. Even the way you say that, that can feel like fact. I know. How do we get rid of that idea that facts are related to feelings and that you can't decide that you feel like this isn't real? Right. Well, here's an example that I talk about sometimes. I actually have a problem with the whole fact checking thing in journalism because there's an assertion there that if everyone just accepts the facts, what's wrong with people is they don't believe the facts, but that's way too simplistic. So imagine that a good friend of yours comes to you and tells you she's super depressed. She's just totally depressed. Her life is like miserable. She feels horrible every day. And imagine that you tell her, well, that's just not the facts. You have a big house. (laughs) You make plenty of money. You're married and seem to have a good relationship and you have friends. So no, you're wrong. That's not the facts. This is a good point you're making because immediately I'm like, oh no, we need to debate this because no, feelings are real. Mm -hmm. Feelings are facts. Mm -hmm. So how do you partition, I guess? Right. What that example tells me is that I, I don't think that the problem necessarily is exclusively that some people just don't accept the facts. What it is is facts serve a purpose and some facts haven't been discovered and some facts aren't being reported. It's about which facts, right? So if media tends to serve up a lot of facts that tend to serve up a lot of affirmation for one point of view, then folks with a different point of view feel ignored and they feel like something's missing and people aren't really listening to them or understanding their point of view. Is that about them not understanding the facts or is it about the facts not following their experience? Or whether it's that there are certain facts that apply to certain situations. So she says she feels depressed. That's a fact because she feels that way. It's not relevant that she has a charmed life Mm -hmm. from somebody else's perspective Mm -hmm. because what we're talking about is her psychological state. Exactly. And that exists and it's irrelevant from what somebody else might think of what her psychological state should be based on her context, right? How she takes information depends entirely on whether she feels that it aligns with her experience. So if you tell her, no, those aren't the facts, what's she going to do? She's not going to talk to you again, right? And that's what's happened in media. Of what her internal psychological state is. Right. There's something she knows. She knows something's up. She knows something's bothering her. But if the information that is being given to her doesn't acknowledge any of that or doesn't give her some answers, Mm -hmm. then she's going to think that that information is actually against her. So let's segue to something that's less feel-based, at least, well, should be less Mm feel-based, science. Two sides to this. Mm -hmm. One side is obviously, you know, water is going to turn to ice at zero degrees Celsius. That's provable, easy. So not a whole lot of people don't feel that that's going to happen. But there are a lot of scientific things right now that are being called into question that are less- Do they feel it or do they know it? I mean, if we're gonna if we're gonna parse this stuff out, mm-hmm. they don't feel like it's gonna freeze at zero. They, they know feel it, like that's they a know fact. that even if you haven't made ice recently. Yeah, you, just, you <laughs> have no like, reason to doubt feel, it. Right, everyone's experience confirms. But obviously, that. there's tons of reason, understandable reason, to not want to accept climate change and other scientific things that are inconvenient for all sorts of reasons. Ice is rather convenient. It's a nice one, and for a while, that seemed like wow. So nature is this impenetrable thing. Richard Feynman famously, after the Challenger disaster, tested like one of the tiles on the bottom of the aircraft and talked about how all the NASA scientists thought this could happen, but didn't want to believe it. So basically changed all of their data. And some famous quote I'm going to butcher basically that just nature doesn't ever just get out of the way for you. It just won't, no matter what you feel or want to be true. On the other side of that, reading a fascinating book by Chuck Klosterman called What If We're Wrong about basic misconceptions of everything. 
The premise being we're basically wrong about everything. Mm -hmm. That for hundreds of years, we were certain about physics, mm -hmm. the nature of literally everything. And then yep. we had a fundamental change in the Pluto understanding. Pluto is a planet, everybody. Yeah, Pluto the understanding of physics changed. Yeah. So if the understanding of physics can change, do we really know anything? But this is just because people don't understand the meaning of science. It's okay to be wrong about science. It's a process of learning and studying. We research, we make hypotheses, we research, we confirm, or we find that we are wrong. It's okay to be wrong about science. That's the nature of the research process. Science doesn't work without that. And it's that fundamental aspect of science is being used against it by people to say that, exactly. oh, therefore the scientists are wrong. I and think that's right. Science is supposed to be about a method. It's supposed yeah. to be about experimentation and right. learning piece by piece. But right now, science is used as a hammer, you know, to call people stupid. And, you know, that's interesting. I see that a lot. What do we know 100,000%? What do we really know? hundred Ice is pretty good, but maybe that's where it ends. Ice is pretty good. I feel pretty good about ice. Ice is pretty good, but no one's going to argue about ice. Ice is not about the future of this country. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, of we're cool with that. Except, but then well, people there's climate bring snowballs but... onto the floor of Congress <laughs> to debate climate yeah. change. I mean, like, yeah. it's, it's such a terrible shame that science is being politicized in this way is supposed to be this truth. Yes, you're right. You're right. And that is the bigger, you're right. I came at it from the other side, but that is the bigger thing is like, to your point about the tobacco industry, again, it's all how things feel. If you can tap into where people are or what the anxieties and concerns are, you can sell a lie. You can override the rational brain. Exactly. You can make the most absurd arguments sound really sound because it connects with them. Whatever connects with people wins every single time. So, I have kind of a massive question. Okay. I was listening to an interview with Neil deGrasse Tyson, who used an example, the discovery of a planet. I forget which planet. A bunch of calculations were done. Experiments were run mathematically. They figured out the exact location where this planet should be based on gravitational things that I don't understand because I'm not a scientist. They pointed the telescope at it, found the planet, and everything was done. They stated their findings. They proved that there's a planet there, and they moved on. But no one asked why, because that's not what science does. Science just tests the hypothesis, proves it, and then throws a party, moves on to the next hypothesis. Mm -hmm. The why of things, why is there a planet there, used to be the purview, once upon a time, of philosophers would sit and debate why things are. But now, philosophy as a school of thought in the world is mostly academic. Yet, it seems to be the why questions that are causing the problems. Mm. Therefore, is the why of things now the purview of journalism? I see. Yes. But didn't the why of that whole thing, that's why they found the planet. The why, mm -mm. what? Why is there a planet there? Yeah, but they don't they, bother they to They went ask. looking for where it was. Because for, of the, the gravity. They, right. So mm -hmm. they were like, the why is suggesting that there should be a planet here. So well, they found it and then it was there. I why mean, is there a planet there? Why are there any planets? I mean, but, you're but getting I mean, into like, really, because really big astrophysics questions. and all the stuff, like they they used the why to find it in the first place. The why was explaining that there should be something here if we could just see it, and then they found it. Yes, and the why was verified. Well, he was using the example in the interview as an example of the line between science and philosophy. Okay. Basically, the larger why of why are any planets anywhere. It's not yeah, that, it? well, the climate is changing. Why? Right. <laughs> well, the thing I don't want to believe, why? We can go back to the last episode. We used ice cream makes you fat. Inconvenient fact. Uh-huh. Why does ice cream make you fat? You know, yeah. it's not, that's a more scientifically it's proven really, thing. It's but more about what should we make of this information? Yes. That is the purview of the reaction and the conversation to journalism. Journalism tends to be the biggest starting point of conversations around that, mm -hmm. but really it's what do we make of this fact? 
the earth appears to be warming. New York Times did a great interactive about, you know, Beijing and cool. New York and all these cities have gotten like whatever, four degrees warmer over their average over the last year. Mm -hmm. What do we make of that fact? That is what is not science. That is what is not fact. That is what this is really all about. And that's where you'll find disagreement is what do we make of that fact? And some people say, horror, we need to change everything. We need to feel incredibly guilty and ashamed. We need to just stop. Our entire market needs to bow down right. to all of this and we should shift everything right now. And other people are like, I thought the planet did a lot of it by itself. What, you tell me is my fault? And we need to change the way business works in America this fast? Like, hold on, right? So mm -hmm. there is usually legitimate disagreement about what to make of the things that we learn. And that's what you're right. Science cannot solve any of that for us. How to interpret and analyze what, what we means. know? Yeah. Not the purview of science. When people try to use science to justify what something means, that's where, in a way, like things backfire on science. So is that how journalism is perpetuating post-truth? Is journalists deciding to tell people what it means? Absolutely. That's where you get into, all right, who's a journalist? Was Bill O'Reilly a journalist? <laughs> is Rachel Maddow a journalist? Is the top investigative reporter at the New York Times a journalist? How do we define that? What is the discipline and the craft? Rachel Maddow and Bill O'Reilly did a lot of interpretation. Mm -hmm. They weren't concerned with everyone's viewpoint. They weren't concerned with trying to bring them all to the table. They were concerned with serving one viewpoint. So, okay, so that's a different mission than the investigative journalist who is a little more considered when it comes to the interpretation, because I think they're conscious of the fact that the interpretation is everything. So you better be real sure that the interpretation is something that people of many viewpoints can come together on, or you don't really have a scoop. You don't really have something groundbreaking. Are facts necessary to have a scoop? It depends on how you define success in journalism. Mm. If success oh, in yeah. journalism is clicks and popularity and virality, <laughs> then no. All you need is an, an interpretation yeah. that is compelling. That's all you need. Yeah. So the blowback effect is when you present someone with facts that fly in the face of a believed reality. Cognitive dissonance takes place where that person either rejects both or believes both simultaneously and they make a judgment as to whether or not they're going to go on believing what they want to believe as their reality or believe the facts that they're presented with. According to some of the studies I read, in people with larger fear centers in their brain, they experience something called the blowback effect where not only do they not believe the facts they're presented with, they believe even more in the reality they want to believe in. Exactly. Which makes this even trickier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, I, I read about a study recently that was around climate change and the hypothesis was or what they were experimenting with was if somebody is more competent at rational reasoning. Well, then when presented with competing evidence, you know, that might challenge their thinking, they should be able to arrive at a more nuanced version of the truth. But same thing goes. The more advanced people are in rational thinking and analytical thinking, what they'll do with competing information is they'll be even better at rationalizing why they shouldn't accept it. Mm -hmm. It's not that they will integrate yeah. it into their thinking. They'll be even better at rationalizing why it doesn't matter. They'll advance their own distance from something that challenges their thinking. They will not get nuanced. Now, apparently the theory is that that only happens in hyper-partisan times, in times when belonging becomes the primary motive for what we want to believe, not an actual search for truth. Objectively, it's more, what will my friends think if they think that I think this? <laughs> right sense of belonging disappears. Exactly. When the very facts we arm ourselves with to try to spread actual facts, when they work against us, where do you go as a journalist? What do you do? I mean, I think the number one thing you do is accept that you know nothing, honestly. Because I think the biggest mistake that a lot of journalists make and a lot of people make is the things I know are true and everyone else is dumb. 
I'm educated, I'm smart. I have the right information. These people who say they're depressed, you know, come to me and tell me they're depressed, they're just wrong. No, right. <laughs> like advanced education or living in a city and feeling like, you know, you live in a nice condo, you have a house, that doesn't make you any more entitled to truth. It just doesn't. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a sense that people think that they are. I went to college, I went to a four-year college. I did liberal arts, you know, I know my sociology, I understand society and, and everyone else is just crazy. And that's not true, it's just not. So we have really to get a lot more humble, especially in cities, yeah, and start over. I mean, my answer to everything these days is get curious. Mm -hmm. Get curious. Don't assume you know anything. Get curious. Somebody tells you something challenging, don't dismiss it. Don't try to rationalize your way against it. Understand that there's a true feeling in there and that that feeling has to be based on some information. Try to understand what information that is. It may not be what you think. Or that person may be coming at you very aggressively, even a hostile way. But usually when people are hostile, it's not because they are against you. It's because they're afraid of something they're losing themselves. Mm -hmm. And if you try to look at it from their point of view, you'll often discover something surprising. This is making me Google quickly here because I was realizing I couldn't remember mm -hmm. what this is called. But yeah, the Dunning-Kruger effect. Mm -hmm. In the field of psychology, the Dunning-Kruger effect is a cognitive bias in which people of low ability have illusory superiority and mistakenly assess their cognitive ability as greater than it is. Hmm. It comes up a lot lately because people in power think that they know everything. Yeah. They don't understand the vast cavern of their lack of knowledge. Yeah. When you're in that position, I guess it's the effect of that lack of knowledge making you think you know more than you do. On the other side of that, people in power also have the ability to make truth, manufacture Absolutely. truth. Absolutely. Oh, that so makes me you, so mad. You no, the idea enough, that you can make truth yeah, right, from right, right. lie, truth is though. Only what so you're redefining people. truth again. Well, no, 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 but you're not yeah. making truth from lie. You're truth not making truth what? from lie. You're just you're just ignoring experiences yeah. that aren't yours. Human but so truth. then why is it truth, though, if it's not truth? What is truth anyway? No. If enough people say a thing is true, regardless of reality, everyone else will either say or believe but that, that thing is true. But that doesn't make it true. So it's making it them lie. Make it, it doesn't make them a fact. It doesn't. But it makes it true. The truth is, is that that one line is shorter than the other line. The truth is that those two lines are different lengths, and some people are lying about it, and some people are lying about it for different reasons, like wanting to fit in with the tribe or yeah. whatever. Yeah. None of those people are creating a different truth. They're just either misstating well, the, the situation. The thing about that experiment or, is yeah. that it's it's conveniently provable. Right. But in real life, few things that people disagree with vehemently are objectively provable from a very agreeable place. It's you know what I mean? Like that experiment only works because 11 people agreed to lie. So, mm -hmm. so much yeah. well, <laughs> they wouldn't yeah. normally do. There that. were several others that were much more specific about political views yeah. and showed a moderate person in a conservative or a liberal group over time. Their non-liberal or non-conservative views will disappear regardless of their actual beliefs. Yeah, isn't amazing? Yeah, God, it doesn't matter. We're so, <laughs> we're so much more manipulatable, right? Like than we think we just are. And it's about who's around us and what we well, want was, our relationship to be with those yeah, people. Yeah, well, it was, it was actually chosen for biologically. The people who survived and were taken care of by the right. group were the ones who literally ignored reality to be agreeable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that because, we could be a hunter-gatherer yes, group together. It's a total yeah. evolutionary thing. You're right. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's important, important to think like, yeah. we have no claws. <laughs> we yeah. have no thick fur to protect us in the winter. Yes. You know, like, we die out there in these freezing temperatures. Yeah. The only reason we survive is because we collaborate. And collaboration does not require truth. Yes. It only requires agreement. We've evolved to be sociopaths. When we need to. No, it's actually, it's quite the opposite. 
Actually, when you think about We've it, it's the exact We've evolved to be empaths. Opposite. We've yeah. evolved to be empaths at the expense of objective truth. Yeah. And I get it. It makes sense. Some sociopaths just take advantage of the fact that everybody else has evolved to be an empath. Like, there's two ways to get around it. Either you're an empath or you're a sociopath, right? Hopefully there's some room in between. (laughs) God, God, I hope so. (laughs) Levels of gray between this. Yes. Tonight we're going to talk about sociopaths. I hope so, yeah. So I, I guess the broader question is, is the direction we're moving in fixable? Social media is mentioned a lot as the catalyst. Yep. It's just added the amount of voices. So that table just gets bigger and bigger and bigger of a bunch of people saying, oh, maybe there are no lines. Maybe there are 200 lines. And so how do we begin to claw our way back? Or are we just not gonna? Yeah. Oh, Lord. So, yeah, social media. God. I feel like I've been talking to social media for way too long. Well, yeah, you but, are. Uh, and for anybody who doesn't know, like, you are, like, Seattle's foremost expert in social well, media. Well, yeah, I mean, there was a point where, like, oh, you know, I was introduced that way. Like, oh, she's mm-hmm. a social media guru, which got really <laughs> passe real fast. But that was years ago. What social media has done is it used to be that all of this tribalism was limited by geography. You know, you could you only had the potential tribe. Uh, memberships that you could like see and walk to and then there were cars and then there was planes and now there's social media so now it's like every single viewpoint under the sun has some kind of community and you could belong to any of them if you wanted to and you could Mm -hmm. find enough community to occupy almost any viewpoint so some people go all the way in on that and there's some pretty radical things that have a lot of strength because of that right and then you also get things like You've heard of shaming on Twitter. Shaming on social media is the most interesting social dynamic that has been kind of created in a huge way. Let's say you go to a bakery and the baker has a cookie. And this was real. This actually happened. The baker has a cookie that says, this was in Edmonds, I think. Yeah. What was the controversial cookie? Uh, What did it it say? It was build the wall. wall. The baker made one cookie. He thought it was a joke, but no one knew that. He made one cookie because he had some extra stuff and he said, build the wall. Woman goes in sees the cookie. Now, before social media, the woman had some choices and one of them could be like, hey, baker, I'm an immigrant. My family is an immigrant. Do you really need to have that cookie? Can you please take that cookie away? And that baker might have been like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'll take the cookie away. Today, Mm -hmm. that woman went in, took a picture, put it on Twitter, and it's a huge deal. And the baker's like, I, why didn't, I'm sorry, no, I'm not the bad guy you all think I am, I swear. And we can all be the judge of that, but... (laughs) But that little moment between two people became a huge moment for hundreds of thousands yeah. of people. Everybody wants to light the match and watch the fire. Because Everyone. you get yes. you you like you get this prestige from introducing a bad thing, from presenting a bad thing to the broader tribe and naming it bad. There's yes. a feel-good thing yeah. there. Oh, it's like the heroic whistleblower you become. Mm-hmm. Regardless of what your position exactly. is, really, exactly. right? Nobody's saying. Did you talk to him? Did you ask him what? No, 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 no. All you have to do is put up the picture and say that that bothered you and tell the whole world. Go to Yelp and write a bad review of the restaurant. No need to tell the chef. No need to tell the people that are right there with you. <laughs> like, like, wow, we've actually skipped the geographic relationship building yeah. and the co-presence and the power of that. You know, we've skipped over that. And, and that's... Oh, I hope that I learned his lesson. Like, when I saw that, I was just like, are you kidding me? Like, yeah. I don't... Sure, everybody's entitled to their <laughs> yeah. ba- But that is not something you joke about. And, and you can joke about. about this and that, but like yeah. if you're running a business. Yeah, I know. I know. Like, he should have known better. But also, you know, once upon a time, that punishment he got would have never been possible, right? No. It's a lot. I mean, I'm sure he learned a lesson. I mean, yeah, that's a, that's a big that. scar. That's a big scar. And so it's like, does the punishment fit the crime? 
how does all of this play a role in your work in terms of, this is my personal opinion, I think Evergrade's the best at is asking questions and asking good questions um, and then letting everybody just chat about it. How does all of this play a role in how you choose which questions to ask? Oh, oh yeah. Behind the scenes at the Evergrade, there is a lot of careful selection and thinking there's a lot. I mean, there's very rarely do we just kind of think of a question and put it up. I can't tell you the number of times we write it one way and we go, that isn't really representative of, you know, if it's about housing, for example, in Seattle, right? Because we're local. There's different stakeholders and there's neighborhoods. So for some groups, the neighborhoods are the villain. The neighborhoods are the ones that want to preserve the status quo. They're the ones that don't want multifamily housing. They want the single family zones to stay and 70% of buildable land in Seattle. Anyway, you can go on. Then there's the developers. And to some, you know, those are the villains. And then there's the activists. And to some, those are the villains. And really, when you look at each group, they each have valid reasons for wanting what they want, right? Like neighborhoods, there are people there who have invested in staying in those places for a long time. They have built their community and their lifestyle and their routines based on the neighborhood being a certain way. Yes, it's a fear of change, but I really prefer to think of whatever people are afraid of, I like to interpret that into what they value. Well, what is it that they value? And usually when you think about what they value, you can relate to it. You can't always relate to what people are afraid of, but you can relate to what people value. You can look at any group in Seattle on any issue, and you'll almost always find something, it comes from a value. And when you understand that, then you can try to design the question that brings everyone to the table. You can try to design the story or the framing. Everything is about framing right now. Mm -hmm. Everything. Every day is like trying to build the frame that everyone can see themselves in. They can literally look at that frame and go, I know my place in this. I can speak up. But frames have a way, if you're not careful about that, then people won't speak up and you might think, oh, it's because I'm not reaching them. No, they saw your frame and they didn't see themselves in it. And they walked away and mm. they're not going to talk to you again. And that's how media gets divided. That's how some media is sort of branded as partisan or whatever is because they've already inadvertently, maybe sometimes unwittingly dismissed some point of view, dismissed some value that exists in some other community. It's a huge challenge. Like, I don't know that we're doing it right. And every time I learn about a new perspective, like I'm, I'm constantly sort of informed about, oh, I didn't consider that because I didn't understand that value. There was one time somebody on Twitter who works in transit, we had written uh, something in the Evergrey about traffic and, and transit and the whole thing. And we wrote it in, in a very car centric way. I just didn't realize it. Mm. You know, it's like the fish swimming in water doesn't, you, right. you ask them what water is and the fish is like, what's water? I don't know, I'm swimming in it. So I don't know, we wrote <laughs> it from the perspective of traffic sucks. And this person on Twitter gave like kind of a harsh criticism. And rather than just like ignoring it, I asked a question like, well, what do you mean? And they basically came back and pointed out that so much of transportation is from the viewpoint of cars. But why? Why? It should be about the viewpoint of how you move people around a city. And that changed the way I look at the whole thing. I said, you're right. I have a car bias. Yeah. I wow, do. I'm fantastic. looking at the whole thing from a car bias. Yeah. I don't need to. Thank you. And I thanked him. And I put it in the Evergrey the next day. Like, thank you to so-and-so. Because yeah. <laughs> they made us realize that we were looking at traffic and transportation from the windshield perspective. It's not because I wanted to. It's just because we are all biased by our own experience. We just are. So I guess that I think the role of the journalist who wants to combat this is try to accumulate as much different experiences as possible. And obviously you can't, you're only one human being. So the next step is ask as many questions of people with different experiences as possible and be as empathetic to that as possible because you have to learn and like integrate that, especially now because it's not being done for you. We are all divided. 
So it's either you going around and like touring these different perspectives to make sure that you're familiar enough with them, mm -hmm. that you can do a good job and set the table for everybody, or you're going to be, you just can't. You are literally incapable of it. Somewhere in your office, do you have like a drawer of dangerous questions? <laughs> you're just like tempted I've never to be like, saved oh, them. let's reach into the drawer. I've never saved them. I mean, I remember there was one question we asked that cut such good conversation, and it was when Paul Allen died. So Paul Allen is this billionaire, oh, the Microsoft co-founder. It yeah. was, it was. And like what we saw was we observed Seattle, you know, celebrating a great philanthropist. But also this is a time when there's a lot of suspicion around wealth and power. Right. So there was that, too. It's like, well, was he that great? And then there's Amazon and there's all these big, powerful entities. And, and so we suspect them. And and we were thinking at the Evergrade, what is the best question? And my co-founder, Annika, came up with the best question. And it was, what do wealthy Seattleites owe the city? We put that on Facebook and <laughs> it was awesome. But again, it wasn't like we we sometimes come up with questions and we say no, because we know that all that's going to inspire is anger. Mm -hmm. You want to inspire people that are actually thoughtful and reflective. And that's what that question did. Is it really at the root and the heart of this is the question, what do wealthy Seattleites own the city? And several people answered nothing. Mm -hmm. They own nothing to the city. We're in a capitalistic society. You know, we, we are individuals. That's the American ideal is you do what you want. You have freedom. What's the value in their freedom? Everyone loves freedom, right? So you, you can always see a value in any point of view that really has weight and, and reflectiveness in it. That was one of my favorite questions we've ever asked. It's fantastic. You said it first earlier that you design your questions. So maybe that is post-truth design or the, where getting out of the post-truth era starts. Maybe. Designing your questions in maybe a more ethical way. Because I can definitely say that there are certain very slanted voices out in journalism that design them in another way to feed the answer within the question. You guys maybe seem to go out of your way to avoid the answer in the question. Yeah, and I wouldn't call it avoidance because there's this um, sort of theorist and thinker journalist who's amazing named Jay Rosen, and he's written extensively about what he calls the view from nowhere. And this was before hyperpartisan times. This was many years ago, but he wrote about objectivity in journalism, where it can be ridiculous, is where it tries so hard to not be this and not be that, that it occupies a view that no one has. Somewhere in between actual views that people actually have is the view from nowhere. And he goes, well, what, what use is that view? Nobody actually has that view. So what use is it? Anyway, so there's this whole body of work debating objectivity and journalism and its real use. And when I talk about the Evergrey, I mean, it's not that the Evergrey has no point of view. We're trying to have a point of view that sees everyone in Seattle and can bring them to the table. So if we were in New York, we would sound differently. If we were in rural America, we would we would be different. It's trying to capture and sit above, see everybody. And I know that that probably doesn't make a lot of sense. But I guess what I'm saying is it's not it's not about avoiding having a point of view. It's about occupying a space where any point of view can feel welcome and speak up. It's, it's different things. And I have more to articulate. I don't know that I've articulated that well. No. Well, I think one of the things you've definitely done from an objective perspective is fostered community. And if you're fostering community in any way, you're bringing people together, which is usually a good thing. So that's a start. But where are we heading? Where's journalism going? Do you think that we are through the hardest part of it? Over the hump? Yeah, good question. I hope so. Yeah, I hope the hardest part of it was these last two years. There's a retreat. When people are afraid, we retreat, right? We've been retreating into our tribes. Here's where I find hope. And this is no surprise to you guys. We probably already said it before. <laughs> but the one kind of retreat that I think is good is a retreat to the local, is a retreat away from 
relationships and conversations with folks that are avatars on a screen and trying to find meaning like where your feet actually touch the ground and where you actually live. I mean, those interactions are more powerful. And now that we are on the other side of 10 years of social media, we can say that with more credibility. We can stand up and say like, no, no, no. Mm I prefer to go to events. I mean, just speaking like anecdotally, the the number of events in Seattle, the quantity and the diversity of them has exploded. Mm -hmm. Storytelling events are like this new genre, came out of nowhere in the last couple years, few years. There are so many of them, and you didn't used to have them. Because hey, the internet did that. You could just write a blog. Well, the blogs have disappeared and people are trying to tell stories in person. There's a retreat to what's grounded and where you can actually see people face to face. And I think, I don't think that anybody has really understood why that is, but I think it's like a good kind of retreat because when you suspect everything you hear, when information is so untrustworthy, then you gotta start building relationships. You gotta build trust in the least scalable way possible, which is meeting somebody, shaking their hand, looking in their Hmm. face and having a conversation. I like that least scalable. It's not scalable. (laughs) Yeah. And like, you know, 2005 to 2015 was all about scale. And like, screw no, scam. I, it's so funny. I feel like still so much value is placed on that. Totally. And I mean, it, it makes sense because that's what the internet makes possible. You can reach everybody. You can scale anything. Well, it's the only thing you can get rich doing. Exactly. And we're, we're capitalistic, right? Mm-hmm. So we look for that value. But is that a human value? Like, is that where you build the, the most human value? Like, I, I've often wondered, actually, whether we were really biologically built to care about quite as much as we are trying to make ourselves care about. Mm. Care about things that are going on all over the world. Read every single article in the New York Times app. You know, a lot of people in Seattle. Read everything, care about everyone. <laughs> Feel guilty about everything. Try to figure out how you can like every Facebook page about every, co- it's like, what, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Isn't that, sc- might that be scattering our force? Might that be too much to ask? What if we could put more of ourselves into fewer things? Would that really be evil? No, in fact, unfortunately, I feel like we're being forced into that position. We talked about this a lot last couple post-truth episodes. We used an example on how you are simply being offered a bargain that you need to participate in, regardless of whether or not you agree to do that. For instance, I used the example at the airport. When you go to the airport, all of a sudden they start offering money for your seat. You didn't get a choice, but you start, do I have to be home at a certain hour? You have to go through that whether or not you chose to or not. And more and more of life is turning into that, that there's a pay option or there's a... Always. Yep. And I wonder if that's playing a role mm-hmm. also. Yeah, I was talking to somebody earlier about there's screens at the gas station. There's screens in the taxi cab. Mm-hmm. There's screens at restaurants. There's, you know, you don't even pay a waitress in some restaurants anymore. It's like you just put it right in here. There's a lot. There's a lot just being thrown at us, mm-hmm. you know? So I don't know. By focusing so much on local news, especially in a city that's very much known for its very particular political views, is it siloed? You mentioned before, if we went somewhere else, you would be different, which I'm not actually quite sure about because I I take a peek at Miami every once in a while. Yeah. Yeah. Where by us in Miami. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have a sister publication. And yeah, no, it reminds me so much of you. Of course, it's different questions. Why is everybody leaving Miami instead of why is everybody coming to Seattle? But um, I don't know if you would be different. And I think maybe that's a good thing. I wonder if it's siloed. There was actually a review of one of our shows. I forgot to tell you about this, Rachel. Um, that talked about how Seattle being so not the mainstream of what people think in America and how strange and foreign this really is. And it made me wonder a little bit, are we as guilty as siloing as everybody else? By making the two data points, framing a question like, what do the rich people in Seattle owe Seattle? 
those two data points are pretty close to each other. Nothing and something yeah. <laughs> versus like it could. It's, like it's yeah, a hugely if you, if epic. Yeah, if you take that question to other places, you'll yeah. find a completely different range of answers. I mean, the answer to your question is just more questions. You know, mm -hmm. are we being too siloed? Well, it depends. What is too siloed? What is not siloed enough? Who gets to decide? How much is one human being supposed to care about? Is it not enough to just care about your community? Mm -hmm. And if not, then God, what are we supposed to care about? How big is the circle we're supposed to focus on? And so all of these questions are really interesting and important. And some people would say, well, you've got to focus on national news, you know. And other people say, we've got to focus on international news. You've got to care about everybody. It's like, okay, well, <laughs> all right. And I mean, I, I guess I would say where I stand right now is where you have the biggest impact is where you are. I believe that. So you can go and leave a comment on the Huffington Post about something that happened in DC, or you can you know, show up to something in Seattle, make a friend, become a regular at a coffee shop. Which one is gonna have a bigger impact on your life? Where are you gonna have a bigger impact? So I would say, to the extent that you act where you are most powerful, be silent. Why not? Awesome. Why not? I'm gonna call the episode that. Cool. Be silent. Be silent. <laughs> on that, thank you. This was awesome. Yeah. Thank you as so much always. for coming back. Totally. Will you come back again? Yes. Awesome. We'll talk about something <laughs> will else. Will you I bring promise. me more wine? Well, of course we will. All right. Then we're good. <laughs> and thank you very much for listening. Check out Design Goggles Podcast on Instagram and Design Goggles on Facebook and Twitter. Also, check out our blog on boardandvellum.com. There's always super cool stuff being posted there. And as always, please stop on by Board and Vellum in Seattle anytime for a chat with us. We would love to have you. Thank you again, and we will see you all in a few weeks.